Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The New Statesman. Hello, I'm Anoush. And I'm Armando. In this episode of Westminster Reimagined, we'll be joined by Kath Haddon and Alistair Campbell to discuss whether our leaders are becoming too much like presidents. Now, Armando, what's wrong with having a strong leader? Well, it depends if they're any good. <laughs> and it depends if they obey the law. <laughs> and as I've been banging on several times in this podcast series, we've reached a point where our constitution, our unwritten constitution, allows a prime minister with a working majority unlimited power. That's fine if that prime minister obeys the general principles of how good government should work. But if they get ideas into the head to just carry on how they would like, irrespective of what those around them are saying or what the public opinion is, then we get into serious trouble. And then most recently, we've had a spate of of prime ministers actually breaking the law, not just through their fines <laughs> for lockdown breaches, but actually getting cabinet and ministers standing up in parliament saying technically we're breaking the law, but only in a limited sense. That's a point where I think we've crossed a certain line. And how dangerous has that point come? And clearly they're seeing themselves slightly differently as well. Boris Johnson spoke repeatedly about the mandate that he'd been given. By That's right. And Jacob Rees-Mogg said that we're in a presidential system. So if we get a new prime minister, we ought to have a general election, apart from when Jacob Rees-Mogg is himself promoted by the new prime minister. And therefore, <laughs> there's no need for a, a general election. Yeah, I think Boris Johnson criticised Gordon Brown in 2007 for not having a mandate from the British public. But then, of course, he came in himself, didn't he? Yes. And, and to be fair, he got Brexit done. So That's we, another episode. That's another, that's a whole other episode. <laughs> Today, we have two special guests to help us get to the bottom of this and even imagine how things could be different. Catherine Haddon is the resident historian at the Institute for Government. She studies changes of government, the role of ministers and how our constitution works. And Alistair Campbell was a former journalist for the Daily Mirror who became Tony Blair's spokesman and director of communications in number 10 Downing Street and believed by many to have shaped the way British governments communicate in the late 20th century. He's now left politics and is an ambassador for the mental health charity Mind, a diarist and also, like so many of us, a podcaster. Thanks so much for joining us, both of you. Pleasure. 
Thank you for having me. First of all, I'd like to hear what you make of the premise of this episode. Do you think that our prime ministers are becoming more presidential? Kath, do you want to come in first? Uh, well, first, I'm going to talk about the phrase presidentialism, because this is a very long debate in British political history. And actually, there's a difference in what you talk about, whether you talk about presidentialism when you are directly comparing to, and most people think of the US president, that's why they talk mm. about it, where you've got a very different political system. So are you actually talking about the trends that, that compare to US presidents? We can come back to that. The other phrase, which is quite ugly, is talking about prime ministerialism. And this is very old. In fact, the very phrase prime minister was first used as an insult on Robert Walpole and the sort of accrued power that he had built up. And he said, I am not a prime minister. I do not want to be a prime minister towards the end of his time in office to try and sort of, you know, dampen down those criticisms of him. So it's a very old debate in that sense. And then the other part of it that, that Armando was getting at is this kind of increased personalisation in politics and populism as part of that. And so I do think you have to start breaking down, actually, what is it that you are getting at, critiquing, that makes us feel uncomfortable? There's definitely something that is making us feel uncomfortable questioning our system, but there's a lot to unpack. And Alistair, did you feel, obviously you felt you had to do something different with when Tony Blair was the leader and fighting the election. You There was an emphasis on him as a personality and it's him as a leader. Did you feel you were changing the rules in any way in order to get him elected? No, I don't think so. I think we were campaigning to our strengths and our opponents' weaknesses, which is what you do in a campaign. And I think when we got into government, I can remember day one, Tony Blair saying that the majority that we had, which was enormous, and people keep going on about Boris Johnson's big majority, it was tiny compared to what we had back then. And but I remember Tony Blair saying, this gives us an added responsibility to think about the people who didn't vote for us. And he, I remember him ordering us, myself, Jonathan Powell, and the other special advisors, we had to develop good relations with the civil service because they were an important part of what we were going to try to achieve. I think what happens, we saw this a bit with Thatcher. I think when you have very people who are seen as strong leaders, either because they're seen as strong characters or because they have a big majority and an agenda for change, mm. you're always going to get accused of being more presidential, wanting more power, wanting to exceed your powers. I don't think that we did. I don't actually think that Thatcher did in a significant way. I think Boris Johnson did. And I think that what we're all struggling with and what you were struggling with when you were setting out the terms of this debate is the extent to which our constitution really does depend on ultimately people being honourable, people being broadly honest, people being wanting to do the right thing, people wanting to govern in the national interest. Mm -hmm. And what you had with Johnson was a rogue prime minister. Just as with Trump, you have a rogue president. And I don't think our system, you can argue that our system has spat him out, but the fact that Liz Truss has been elected in part by not spitting him out, by not wanting to distance herself mm. from him, by continuing to say that, for example, Brexit's going very well, the Northern Ireland Protocol is an easily solved problem, we can cut mm. taxes for the rich and things will get better. She's actually pursuing a politics that is very similar. So... I worry that though we may have for now seen the back of Johnson, we have not seen the back of the populist politics that is stress testing our democracy. But I wonder whether both the examples of Thatcher and 
Blair are examples of strong leaders who've, and you can argue whether this was intentional or subconscious, actually centralised a lot of government power. So away from the cabinet ministers and the ministries and more in Downing Street. And whether that's now set the kind of model to which all future prime ministers work. Well, the only thing I'd say about that is that ultimately, when the demise of Johnson is written, it is Rishi Sunak's resignation that did him in. And likewise, Mm -hmm. I would say with Margaret Thatcher, famously, she had very troubled relationships with chancellors. And likewise, Tony Blair may... Tony Blair was a very powerful (laughs) prime minister, but he had John Prescott as his deputy who was a pretty powerful correcting force, if you like. And likewise, yeah, Gordon Brown. A lot was made of us sofa government and all that nonsense. And, you know, the, the advisors were more powerful than the politicians. But I actually do think that, I remember Tony Blair used to say, if the first I know I've got a problem with the ministry is when it's raised at the cabinet table, we collectively are not doing our job properly. We have to know what ministers are thinking. We have to know what's going on in the undergrowth. Yes, it's true that we didn't sit around for five hours discussing every issue, but that's because actually the cabinet committee process is important. And if it's effective, if it's well-led and it's running well, you can get an awful lot of the work done that way. Yeah, I think Alistair's touching on an important point here. The problem is the checks on a prime ministerial system are political because ultimately the prime minister heads up the government and through the monarch is able to decide who is and is not in in cabinet, which is the kind of, it's an informal power, but it's the most important power keeping them in the job and has the effect on all these other sort of powers of number 10 across the government system. But the check on them is ultimately keeping confidence in the commons, but also extension of that, keeping support of their party. And the most troubling moment for me towards the end of Johnson's premiership was that moment on, I think it was the Wednesday evening or whatever, when it seemed like even with this record-breaking number of ministerial resignations in one day, he was still going to tough it out. And I was starting to get to the point where I had to point out that it may not be so explicit in the cabinet manual and other constitutional documents, but the ability to be able to form an effective government, i.e., have ministers who are willing to serve under you is a prerequisite to being prime minister. So we were getting to the point when the Queen might have had to step in, shocking as it seems, and say, are you actually sure you can well, form a government at this had, point? We've had a change of leadership in the royal family recently. <laughs> is, that, is that going to be consequential? I can't imagine King Charles standing by when his advisors are saying, well, technically they're breaking the law. I think this is a really interesting question for the monarchy going forward. We talk about our uncodified constitution. It has this backstop at the heart of it that is inherently supposed to be apolitical, i.e. not to act. So it's incumbent upon politicians not to drag the palace into this stuff. But in last resort, it's the only thing that can act, Mm. especially if you get a situation we saw with prorogation of parliament where parliament doesn't have the ability to step in. And we saw that through the sort of Brexit battles and prorogation crisis. And again, we get some hints of it in an issue we're talking about it, the language that Jacob Rees-Mogg and and Boris Johnson were using around the concept of the mandate being directly from the people. And that, for me, is quite troubling because we'll get on to this, but it leads to this question, well, if I kept putting out there on Twitter... If you want that kind of system where you say you've got a personal mandate, well, then change the electoral system mm-hmm. so that there, or change our constitution. So if we have a president, have OK, yeah. but you can't pretend when you've got a parliamentary democracy 
that it's working in a different way. You've got to abide by the rules of the system that you're using. It's, it's also interesting. You mentioned Rhys Mogg a couple of yeah. times. Rhys Mogg, who parades as the most patriotic, the most deferential to the institutions of monarchy, etc., he cannot, on the one hand, pretend to be this great historic lover of our constitution and, on the other hand, say that we have this presidential system whereby anybody who votes conservative is actually voting for the prime minister. I think that these principles of the monarch appointing the prime minister, who's capable of forming a majority in parliament and getting a legislative programme and a budget through, MPs having that constituency link, if we want to get rid of them, get rid of them. But you can't keep them and pretend that you've got rid of them because it's politically expedient at the time. Mm. But personal appeal is very important to the public. I was looking at satisfaction levels with party leaders of the two main parties over the past few elections. And those satisfaction levels would have predicted the outcome of the last 11 general elections. So obviously, personal appeal is very important. Whenever you speak to political analysts, they say there's very little candidate effect in the way that people vote for constituency MPs. So people are voting for either the party brand or the leader, which very much affects the party brand. Yeah. And if you look back historically, that's a long running trend. And you can talk back to Gladstone, Disraeli, very prominent orators and increasing, you know, Gladstone traveling around the country doing these sort of big speech moments. This is the development of the modern political party. And it's not completely associated with the two of them as individuals, but their sort of prominence as as big political figures definitely is intertwined with that. But also you think back to Churchill. I remember, I think it was 1959, where his campaign poster was literally a silhouette of him. No words, nothing. That that was after he had ceased to be prime minister. But, But even in the aftermath of the Second World War, people were talking about voting Churchill. So it's not necessarily a completely modern phenomenon, but it is definitely one that that more and more our system, the media, the way in which that works, the leader debates, all of that is focusing much more on them. But I always think back to, maybe I've banged on about him too many times, but one of my great heroes, political heroes, Clement Attlee, who was not charismatic control freak, but was someone who was quite happy to surround himself, make a ministry of all the talents, really, a cabinet of all the talents, and let strong individuals perform to the best of their abilities in their ministries. What's gone wrong? What has changed in the last 15 years or so, where every time a new leader comes in, they feel they have to stamp their authority all the way through the cabinet, all the way through their policies without an election? Well, I'm going to to say a few words I very rarely say. To be fair to David Cameron... <laughs> he appointed a cabinet. He appointed a cabinet and actually, by and large, let them get on with their jobs. And he had around him people like Osborne, people like Gove, people like obviously Nick Clegg when he was Deputy Prime Minister. He had some pretty big beasts in there who had a lot of power. I mentioned earlier Gordon Brown, Robin Cook when he was Foreign Secretary, John Prescott as Deputy Prime Minister. We had, I think, Tony Blair, to his credit, want, genuinely wanted to put the strongest people in the cabinet. Whereas I do think that Johnson wanted to put around him people who were not there on talent, were not there on merit. I don't think that somebody like Nadine Dorries would ever have got a job in any other government that we've ever had. I don't think Priti Patel would ever have been the holder of one of the great offices of state in a Thatcher government. I don't think she'd have got anywhere near it. But Johnson wanted people around him who were utterly yes people. Now, I don't, so I don't, I completely agree that the way the media debate has changed has forced more attention on the leaders, whether they like it or not. 
But it doesn't mean that one of the things that the country makes its mind up about is whether they see the strength in depth. And it's really important that the country does see strength in depth. And that's why when we did the 97 campaign, for example, yes, Tony Blair was the focus. Yes, we had him out on the road. But we would always have members of the shadow cabinet there or thereabouts because it was important that people saw there was strength in depth. But that's what I'm seeing missing now in that, and it's not just in government, it's in opposition. I say we like about Keir Starmer, but I don't know why he doesn't push his fairly strong team of shadows. But that, that also people. goes to the, the need to control it. And Alistair, it'd be interesting to get your reflections on this, but it's that you don't want people going rogue. So, you know, from number 10, you you there's the grid. There are ways of knowing who's doing the media rounds. Who are your trusted performers that aren't going to cause, say something off the cuff, cause a political storm that means they spend the rest of the day having to fix it. And for an opposition party, that level of control is quite an important thing of getting to the election intact because things can go off the rails very quickly. I think this is the quite frightening thing about this trend is that this ability to form your party in your own image means that Boris Johnson was able to present himself as a break from a past of successive Conservative governments. And we actually had some polling in the New yeah. Statesman that showed that the majority of the British public didn't associate his government with that of yeah. David Cameron's or Theresa May's in the past. You can't blame the new Conservative leader for wanting to pretend that becoming a new Conservative leader means you're a change of government. It's then the job of the opposition and the media to, to have proper scrutiny. I think I wrote something during the leadership election about this. Labour were far too quiet during the Tory leadership election. They should have been, it was obvious at one point when Trust was going to win, they should have been branding her as the continuity candidate, the person who's been there for 12 years, get the public aware of some of the decisions she's made in the past. There's no better time to do it than when the public is first becoming conscious Mm. of a new political leader. The other thing to say about party leaders, you know, whether in opposition or in government, is they're always afraid of the tall poppies rising up above them. Johnson, supposedly, that was the reason why he put people in particular position. Liz Truss in Department for Trade was not very visible for a long period. It seems to have worked in her favour. But think about it from Keir Starmer's point of view. He's already got people like Andy Burnham, Sadiq Khan, all sort of around as alternatives that people can look to. And the same is true of prime ministers. So it's a slightly human instinct, isn't it, to not maybe want to give other people too much prominence? I do think, though, I think it's a terrible, I think it's a really bad mistake to think like that. You know, one of historians will wrestle with the, uh, the, the question as to whether Tony Blair at any point maybe should have thought about moving on Gordon Brown. But one of the reasons he didn't is because Tony Blair wanted really strong people to be around. He didn't w- want weak people. He wanted strong people. And I think a leader who surrounds themselves with people that are there because they're weak or they're there relegated because he, fear, he fears them to be strong, I think, it's, I think that's just not the way to go. Real leadership is about bringing out the best of the team. Hi, Anoush here. We've got a special offer for Westminster Reimagined listeners. You can subscribe to the New Statesman for just a pound a week for 12 weeks. Just go to newstatesman.com forward slash podcast offer. And you can check out all our podcasts, including audio long reads and world review at newstatesman.com forward slash podcasts. We'll be right back. From the New Statesman comes World Review, a twice-weekly international news podcast. From Ukraine to Brazil, DC to China, we cover the stories that matter in a world that's constantly changing. 
Every Monday, we interview a guest for their unique perspective and expertise. And then later in the week, we come together to unpack some of the most significant stories in world affairs. Join us. Just search World Review wherever you get your podcasts. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. And is it also that the we've somehow we've allowed the agenda to become all about being prime minister so that yep. as soon as any talented politician finds out or realizes they're not going to be, their instinct is to just get the hell out rather than tell themselves, well, I'll make a fantastic foreign secretary. I'm proud of that. Or I, what I really want to do is become education secretary and make my mark. It seems to be that as, as soon as you learn what your chances are of getting into number 10, and as soon as you know that's not going to happen – the story seems to be, well, move on then, because it's the only job that's worth having. Yeah, some of the people I you talk about. I don't think that's true. We'll come back to you in a second then. Okay, hold that thought. Well, so I was <laughs> going to say, if you think of some of the ministers we talk about as being strong ministers, Michael Heseltine, Ken Clark, these were runners for prime ministers who weren't, and history is littered with them. And yeah, it is something about the way we write the history books. We always talk about administrations by the name of the person who led them, same way as we talk about monarchs, as if they controlled everything that happened during their reign. And it is there is a sort of personalisation of, of how we view history and politics in the same way as we talk about, particularly if you go back into history, it's always the strong men and there's been a real push of social history to try and talk about all the other people, including women, who played a part in that. But it is, again, it's something quite human in our politics and so forth that we like to personalise things. And even doing this podcast, in a sense, we are focusing attention yet again yeah. On the we're not talking about cabinet government and how to make it as good as possible. Well, yeah. I'm yeah, going yeah, back no, to cabinet government. A point about if I was leader of the Labour Party, I think Andy Burnham said it. I'd want to use them as much as possible. I'd want to talk about the party getting a bit stronger in Scotland now because it has its own 
slightly more yeah, individual identity. Yeah, I think to some extent they are. Again, remember that we see stuff through the lens of the media to some extent. Mm. And, you know, you can look at all the tweets that they're putting out. But still, if the majority of the articles are written about Rakir Starmer's speech, yeah. actually, shadow cabinets are out doing stuff day in, day out. And more likely than not, speaking in public, if not once a week, then fairly regularly. That's what I meant when I said that if you're not getting noticed, then... You can't blame the media for that. You have to work out, well, okay, this is what I'm saying, but how do I cut this through? I do disagree, Amanda, but I think yeah. a lot of politicians... Look, you mentioned the podcast I do with Rory Stewart. We often talk, Rory always says that most people who are MPs think they can be prime minister. I don't really think that's true, actually. I think a lot of MPs actually are terif- would be terrified at the idea of being prime minister. I can remember talking to Alan Johnson, who lots of people used to say was Alan was a terrific minister, but and lots of people used to try and push him to go for the leadership. And I remember Alan saying, I, I just, I'll look at Tony doing that job and I'm just not sure I could get to that. I think one of our best ministers was David Blunkett. I think he was a fantastic education secretary, went on to be home secretary, a really big job. But I think David, and I'm not just thinking because of his blindness, by the way, I think David had thought maybe not the very top job. I think lots of politicians think like that, but they still think they can do some good in, in a serious job and make a difference. Have we made the job then too impossible? Has it become so difficult that you must be absolutely crazy to, to want to have that kind of role now? It is. I, I think I talk a lot in writing about the role of prime ministers, about the sheer mm. overload of it. If you've got a good team and they are sifting the work as it gets to you, they're making sure that number 10 isn't becoming a bottleneck. You have clear sense of where decision making happens it's eminently doable but when you don't have those things then you are talking about when you've got basically command and chaos rather than command and control that's when it really struggles and that's when also you can find that the cabinet comes back and bites you because if number 10 isn't helping get the decisions through, then ministers are going to go off and do them themselves. I always think of it as, you go back to school days, there was always one teacher who, if there was a rowdy class, would just poke their head in and everything would go quiet. And you ask yourself, how did he do that? Because <laughs> he hasn't threatened us with anything. Is, is it that ability to just be able to instill calm and control across your party? Well, I, I don't believe that the job's impossible. I think it requires somebody to be very hardworking, have a clear understanding of what they're trying to achieve, the ability to build a team, the ability to put the right people in the right jobs, and the ability to focus. I think that, what again, I don't want to keep going on about how awful Johnson was, but he was. But I was just awful. thinking, one of jo- Johnson did none of those things for three years. He did none of those things because he was, inca- he was psychologically incapable of doing them because he's like a butterfly just wandering from one thing to the next. Tony Blair, when he was prime minister, the other thing he had was this capacity for recovery and rest. He could take half a day down at Checkers or in his flat, whatever it might be, and just sort of reading or playing tennis or something. And he'd come back. And most Sunday evenings, we'd be sitting in the days of faxes, we'd be sitting at home, his core team, and the fax would whir into action. And he'd have just sat down for half an hour and set out his thoughts on paper. And that was his way of saying, this is where our thinking needs to be for the next bit. And it was always in the main, be related to stuff that we were already being focused on because we were strategizing around it. And I think as long as you, there's a reason why he said, if you ask me my three priorities, education, 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 it was a way of sending a message, education really matters. That's one of the things I'm going to stay focused on. Likewise, Europe, likewise, some of the foreign policy issues. That is how you have to do the job and you have to trust your ministers 
to get on and do their jobs and only bring the problems when they really are problems. And meanwhile, just get on and do the stuff they're meant to be doing. We've just got a, a few more minutes. And we talked right at the start about being honourable, you know, the idea that the job only works or the system only works if there's an honourable. Where are we going now? I'm thinking of the example that Trump has set, the Bolsonaros of this world who may question their uh, 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 the vote when it comes. Senate candidates in the midterms are even talking about not accepting the results of elections. We are now in a kind of slightly dangerous area where, given the untrammeled authority we give our Prime Minister, it just needs one, to use the phrase, bad actor to come along and we're in trouble. Yeah, I think that's a different aspect we need to look at, which is the are there things in our uncodified constitution that you could actually make a lot simpler? And that includes how we actually have prime ministers appointed. It's on this phrase, likely to be able to command confidence. Now, if you end up, we've not had one in a long, long time, but if you end up with a situation where you've got no one particularly near to the sort of magic majority number, you could end up with multiple potential prime ministers. The system works where the incumbent gets a chance and if they get voted down, but that's all quite complicated. You could simply have what the Scots have, which is an investiture vote. So a way upon first meeting for Parliament to say, for the Prime Minister to demonstrate that they can actually command confidence. And that helps take the palace out of it. So that's just one example. But I think there are other ways in which you can try and look around the world, think about other systems and how we can incorporate some of that to just clear up a few of those grey areas. But any system is going to be vulnerable to a bad actor. We are very privileged in the UK to have had centuries worth of sort of peaceful transitions of power where the results haven't been questioned. I think we're still a long way from those kind of US risks. But obviously, you only need to look at what goes on in social media and see the rise of conspiracy theories and so forth to see how it can still be very damaging, even if it's not something that's in the mainstream media or that politicians are actually concerning themselves with. Alice, are you f- fearful for the future or uh, hopeful? I am. I No, I'm both, actually. I'm hopeful that there is enough concern out there that will... I'm actually writing a book at the moment about trying to engender more passion about politics and get people who just turning away from it to get back into it. And I think if that can be translated into genuine political activism, I think we can get change for the better. My worry is that people are turning away from it and thinking it doesn't really matter that much. And it's interesting when, you know, there's a lot of, uh, again, Royce, you and I talk about this the whole time, about, you know, we should have a written constitution and major democratic reform. And then you look at what happened in Chile recently, where there was a referendum, 80% of people saying they wanted to see the change that led to a written constitution. The government brought forward the, the written constitution and they rejected it, even though it gave them lots of rights. So I think if you're in that populist environment where people want to give their politicians a kicking, it's very hard to play around with these big constitutional questions. And that's what leads to people probably think, let's just muddle along and hope that if you do get a rogue like Johnson, you get spat out of the system fairly quickly. And that's also, I think, maybe this is too simplistic, but it seems to be the Blair and Cameron owed their electoral success, I think, to appealing beyond their party. And it may be the likes of Truss and certainly Johnson are relying on appealing to their base. But Johnson, well, they won the Brexit referendum and, the, and he got a majority against Corbyn in part by winning over people who had traditionally no, been Labour yes, voters. No, so, so I don't yeah. think, he, I think he maybe was doing that latterly, but I think in the, I think you'd have to say that some of his electoral success was down to him appealing beyond his party. 
and it's accepting the idea that parties are in themselves coalitions, aren't they? Mm. They're coalitions of different strains of thought. Yeah, and on that point, I do wonder whether it's this environment that they're operating in that might end up incentivizing the idea of being more presidential. When you talk about talk to press officers in the Green Party, they're tearing their hair out that no one ever wants to speak to anyone who's not Caroline Lucas, even though she hasn't been leader of the party for a long time. Same with Nigel Farage's appeal and the various iterations of UKIP and the Brexit Party, they've struggled without him. And there's something, the fact that research has shown that Prime Minister's popularities go up when they're away on holiday, when the public's not reminded about who they are. <laughs> so what's our conclusion? More holidays for Prime Ministers? <laughs> Probably well, would be a good thing. Yes, actually. there are no conclusions. No, but I think doing the job properly is the most important thing they can do, being seen to lead, <laughs> have a framework, get on and do it. And ultimately, Johnson failed because he couldn't do the job. And yes, he was a liar and all the rest of it. But ultimately, he could not be the Prime Minister. He was not up to the job. Kath and Alistair, thanks so much for joining us. So, Armando, I'm feeling a bit sheepish after that because it seems like the media has a lot to answer for, as well as our individual leaders. Let's turn it on our listeners because who <laughs> feeds the media? It's those who choose to listen and watch it, isn't it? It's Yes, obviously, we love the personal story of the personality behind the office. Inevitably, whoever's in charge is going to get the lion's share of attention. I do uh, think, though, that we're now breeding politicians who go into it because they want to be prime minister who've been cosplaying the role since the age of six i imagine rishi sunak had posters of thatcher up and all sorts but who who try to project themselves as prime ministers in waiting and when that moment doesn't materialize they do ask themselves well what is there left to do in politics i think it was really interesting what they were saying about the fact that they can use their personalities to brand the party in a new way each time and whether or not that's a problem or whether it's just an effective way of being a campaigner. And that brings us to the point that I think we've spoken on 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 previous episodes of this podcast about the difference between campaigning and the difference between governing. And you mentioned Clement Attlee and the different types of personalities that we've had. And perhaps we're just increasingly getting campaigners to the top of politics. That's true. Yes, no, I agree. And you talked about the media. Yes, it's the media's job to question them. But we don't do that. Now, is that because governments sense their sense of power and are turning that power to demonise the media and to pressurise them into shutting up and not asking awkward questions. Yes, and also it's the opposition gets punished for reminding voters of the past. Ed Miliband even, when he was leader of the Labour Party, they were campaigning against the cuts and austerity, but it didn't seem to sort of bring them very much success among the public. And it's because we do have a sort of future forward-looking electorate. And that is something that Tony Blair has said before, that politics is about the future. People vote on the future rather than the past. And also we have a trend of politicians now implying that if you don't agree with them, you must be unpatriotic. Liz Truss got in partly with her members by saying, I will not have people do down this country as someone like her, even though she is someone who has repeatedly criticised the BBC, the NHS, the Bank of England. The policies of her own party. The policies of her own party. <laughs> the previous Prime Minister but one yeah. in her own party. Teachers, schools, universities, lecturers. Lawyers. Everyone. Yes. Yes, lawyers. Yes, yes. The, the justice system. Apart from that, she loves this country. Thanks so much, Armando. No, thank you. You've been listening to Westminster Reimagined on the New Statesman podcast with me, Anoush Kellyan, and our special guest host, Armando Iannucci. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review and don't forget to subscribe. You can watch video from this podcast on the New Statesman's YouTube channel and on the New Statesman website. This episode was produced by Adrian Bradley and May Robson. Our executive producer is Chris Stone.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.